0: Uh, Thanks uh, very much uh, for the invitation to speak. Uh, Thanks very much for the opportunity to talk about evidence aid uh, at uh, a conference that, as as Chris has just said, is clearly dedicated to how evidence can be used to make make better decisions. So I'm going to preface what I say and before I start running through the slides by saying some things that I'm not. I'm not a healthcare practitioner. I'm not a disaster first responder. I'm not a vet. I'm not a statistician. I would just say I'm a researcher. I fell into being a researcher working in trials and systematic reviews uh, several years ago now. And Evidence Aid is an attempt to say what can we bring from research through evidence into practice. So I'm, I'm not doing this talk from the perspective of what, they, uh, what vets are able to do in the disaster context. I'm talking as a non-practitioner, but as an evidence producer about what we could do. And It is very interesting, uh, Chris took us back to the 18th century in uh, evidence and veterinary research. If I take you back to November the 1st, 1755, so A day and 260 odd years ago, something called the Lisbon earthquake happened. The Lisbon earthquake was one of the biggest earthquakes to hit Europe. It's 250 or more years ago, but it's when science started paying attention to earthquakes. And it's when people started counting things at earthquakes. How many people are injured? How many buildings have fallen down? How many people have been killed? And I expect that... From the veterinary side, people are also thinking about the impact of the earthquake on on animals, on agriculture, etc. So we can think that far back. But basically, from a historical perspective, we can find these little snippets. But then nothing much has happened. But then in the last few decades in healthcare, things have started to move. Evidence-based healthcare. And you'll hear from uh, Gillian Lang tomorrow from NICE. About how evidence is being used in healthcare. So how is it being used? How might it be being used in the disaster context, the humanitarian context, to just illustrate how in challenging circumstances we can make use of the evidence and we can make use of the evidence through systematic reviews. So evidence aid... Uh, uncertainties. We're all faced by uncertainties. You're faced by uncertainties as practitioners, as as researchers. I'm faced by uncertainties in the work I do. So again, it's been mentioned I work at the uh, Northern Ireland Hub for Trials Methodology Research. As a trialist, there are many uncertainties in how best to do our trials. But as a humanitarian, we're all humanitarian. We're faced by uncertainties when we see the news. And I started work uh, in Queen's University in Belfast on March the 9th, 2011. This happened the very next day. This is the Japanese earthquake uh, that led to the tsunami, that led to the problems at Fukushima. And it still has repercussions for the uh, nuclear industry and still has repercussions for the people in the region in Japan. And this is just some screen grabs from the BBC website and I'm just going to scroll the pictures. And just these are, we as human beings would feel uncertain about how we could help there. If we were responders, we would feel uncertain about how we could help. And I'll come back to the, uh, these pictures at the end. But it's just to illustrate that in the disaster context, in the humanitarian crisis context, we are faced by many uncertainties. And I, by we, I mean all of us as a uh, global population. What would we do? What should we do? What should we send? What should we encourage our policymakers to be doing? So how can we help? And how can we help as researchers? How can we help as evidence producers? Well, first of all, we know that as human beings, our friends, our colleagues, our neighbours, our family are affected. Millions of people are affected by disaster every year, billions of dollars are spent uh, globally by the people and the organisations involved in disaster risk, risk reduction to try and stop the problem or reduce the problem. Resilience make the next time less damaging than this time, planning, response, recovery. So a whole spectrum. And they want to do things that will lead to better protection, less death, injury and damage, quicker recovery. I and mean, again, I don't have to be speaking here about uh, fellow human beings who are, being, who are suffering here. All of us, and the patients, in quotes, that you care for. But doing something is not enough. As, as human beings, we will feel an urge to respond. If I was outside uh, in George Street and somebody uh, was knocked off their bicycle, I might feel an urge to go and help them and sit them up. I would be the, one of the worst piece people possible to do that. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm not a, a first aider. So I would feel a natural urge to do it. But maybe by lifting them up and helping them sit on the pavement, I would be doing more harm than good. So doing something is not enough. It needs to do more good than harm. We cannot just respond to help our fellow human beings and just assume that that's a good thing. It might make for us feel good, but it needs to do more good than harm. Decision makers need to know what works for whom and by how much so they can make tough policy decisions, tough rationing decisions. But they also need to know what doesn't work so they don't waste time, money, flights, sending things uh, that aren't going to be of any use, or encouraging behaviours that will not be of any use. What remains unproven? And this isn't a nihilistic approach that says if it's not been proven, don't use it. But it is an approach that says, why should we use that? Maybe there is something that has been proven to be beneficial and maybe that would be a better bet. And what, no matter how well-meaning, might actually be harmful. The worst thing we could possibly do. We're trying to help people and actually we're harming them. We're not just being neutral and wasting time and money. We are harming. So they need to make uh, well-informed choices and decisions. They need access to reliable evidence. And this is building to how in these challenging situations we can generate evidence, we can make evidence available, we can improve access to that evidence. So Evidence Aid came out of the Indian Ocean tsunami of Boxing Day 2004 with a sense as members of the Cochrane Collaboration dedicated to producing systematic reviews across health and social care, what are we doing to help It was initially a degree of naivety on our part in thinking, well, what can we do now to help? We've just seen this. We've woken up on Boxing Day morning and we've seen what's happening in Thailand and around the Indian Ocean. What can we do to help now? The naivety of that is that it's no good providing evidence in those hours and days after the emergency. You need it up front. You need people to have thought about it in their planning. But that's what, that's what kicked it off. That was a sense of, look, this is you know, affecting millions of people across many countries. What can we as evidence producers do to help? It's about improving access to reliable information on interventions to help well-informed choices. It works with key influencers. So we're working with the uh, NGOs. We're working with the United Nations agencies, particularly with the World Health Organization, but also with programs such as uh, UNICEF and UNHCR uh, for the children and for refugees. Working with the charities, the major charities, Medicines en Frontier, and so on. These are the people that do stuff. These are the people that issue the guidelines. These are the people that set the standard operating procedures. Working with them... To inform them of the evidence will cascade that decision making process. And we're now in our third five years. So, it really, Evidence Aid worked almost accidentally in um, two five year cycles of activity, and now in a third five year cycle with some funding to put in place of a, a small staff team, but is allowing us to, to implement a strategic plan to try and scale this up. But we need to step back as well, and we need to always remember that when we think about evidence, evidence is not just about randomised trials. It's not just about systematic reviews of randomised trials. Where the way where they come into the picture is they're the bit that will fill the piece of the jigsaw that's to do with the effects of the interventions, actions or strategies. We have to take account of many other things as well, and we recognise that. This is not uh, what, uh, in evidence-based medicine, Dave Sackett used to call cookbook medicine. This is not a recipe based on reviews of randomised trials and everybody should implement it. This is recognise the evidence on the effects of the interventions or actions or strategies. Bring in the other evidence that you need and then make a well-informed decision. And my role as an evidence producer is not to tell practitioners what to do. It's to make sure that the evidence that I'm aware of and the evidence I've helped to produce is in front of them when they make the decision. They've got much, many other things to think about as well, but I've failed as a researcher if they're not thinking about my evidence when they're making those decisions. Reliable evidence needs to minimize chance and bias, as the final bullet point on that, which is a standard push that will say, why do we do systematic reviews? That's one of the main reasons why we do systematic reviews. So why why do decision makers need this evidence? And this is a slide I was given by an Israeli uh, surgeon, and it follows the the Haiti earthquake uh, coming up to seven years ago now, and... What they looked at were compound fractures—people that had a very bad fracture of uh, either the arm or the leg—and people that went were treated at the University of Miami's uh, Field Hospital. About 10% of them had an amputation, and the X-ray—again, um, you're more familiar than I am with X-rays such as this—you uh, know, not necessarily of a. Uh, a human arm or leg, but I'm fairly sure you do external fixation. So that's, pi- that's pinning it and putting the cage on. So how do you manage this compound fracture? Do you just chop the limb off? Or do you um, use the pins and the external cage? And the, hi- the Miami surgeons, 10% amputated. The Swiss surgeons, less than 1%. And there is no reason to believe that the 150 patients that went to the Swiss Field Hospital are any way different to the 500 who went to the Miami Field Hospital. They were not deterministically sent to one or other hospital. The fractures they were seeing were haphazardly similar. But they responded differently, and this we would take as indication of uncertainty about the behaviour. And again, I'm sure Gillian talks more about NICE guidelines. One of the things that underpins the need for guidelines is uncertainty and variation in practice. This reveals that the surgical teams would have made different decisions about what to do with that person's arm or that person's leg. Not necessarily based on robust scientific evidence. Based on strong opinion, almost certainly. But not necessarily based on evidence. If they had evidence, then those numbers could be different. And I'm not, going, I'm not in a position to say whether or not the Miami team were right and the Swiss team were wrong. But they are fundamentally different in the proportion of amputations that they did. With evidence... If it had been available to them about the relative benefits and harms of amputation versus external fixation, I predict that those percentages would have been different. So access to evidence. How can people access this evidence? And again, not necessarily thinking about it in the the chaos of responding to a disaster, but in the calmness of an office in Geneva at the WHO. How should people access this evidence? Because it's all over the place. This evidence that's out there in the humanitarian sector is all over the place. In journals, in books, in NGO reports, some of it on the internet, some of it on shelves, some of it even, there was a a talk last week, on a shelf in the very office of the decision-maker from a report from before their time, and they didn't take that report down to uh, make any sort of uh, informed decision about their actions. So where can we begin? Well, in effectiveness issues, we can begin with systematic reviews. And so most of you will be familiar with uh, Cochrane. So we have what I'm illustrating with There's the cover page of a Cochrane review. I put a little um, orange cross on it to indicate that it needs to be a bit more than just the review. Cochrane reviews are generated as a uh, general guide to what the, the evidence is on a particular topic. They're not tailored to any particular setting. One of the virtues is you should be able to pick the review up anywhere in the world and decide for yourself whether or not it's relevant to you. It's not intended for a Canadian audience or a British audience or an Irish audience or an Argentinian audience. It's gener- intended for all audiences, but that does mean if you pick it up where you are, you're going to have to make some difficult thinking to see, is it applicable? And so the plus that we might be putting on from the disaster context is help people see its potential relevance in disaster or humanitarian response. Why do we like them? Again, this is a fairly standard set of reasons that people like me, who've been working in reviews for a while now, will drum out when we're explaining what we do and why we do it. Avoid undue emphasis on single studies. And this goes on big time in the humanitarian sector. And many things that I got uh, involved in this 10 or 12 years ago now surprised me about how the humanitarian sector works. Because from outside the sector, you would think everybody likes everybody else and everybody uh, is not rude about anybody and so on. Well, get inside it and you'll see how rude they are about different people's research. We can't afford to have people saying, do it this way because my study showed it works, when there are another eight people in the room saying, Well, your study uh, isn't very good and our study showed it doesn't work. And also, we we have to recognise that one of the challenges faced particularly by the charities would well be, do they want an evaluation out there in the public domain to show what they did last time was ineffective or harmful? Probably not. So... How can we tease that out? Because if they know not to do it again next time, but how do the other charities and the other NGOs know not to do it again next time if their evidence from last time has been hidden away? So how can we tease these things out? They identify relevant research and they appraise its quality. So there are good studies. There are bad studies. We need to be able to find all of the studies and then to say in a transparent way whether or not They are good or bad, whether or not they are helpful or unhelpful. It makes best use of research already done. And certainly in healthcare now, and I expect in veterinary research as well, there's a big push already there, and it's coming bigger, about wasting research. How much wasteful research is being done? How many studies are being done that are unnecessary? How many studies are being done and not reported clearly? So, reviews, one of the virtues of them, it says, well, the research has already been done. We need to do the research that is the systematic review. But maybe we can draw on the existing research instead of going headlong into a new study. Maximizes the power of the conclusions, is both the sort of statistical power, but also if we can say, well, this has come from four different studies done in four different places by four different groups, and the results are consistent. Maybe the fifth group in the fifth place is thinking, well, it'll probably work for me as well. Identifies the gaps and how best to fill them and improves access. And again, as I've said, the humanitarian research literature is scattered more than any of the other areas of um, scientific literature I've um, worked on. It's all over the place. But if you can bring it together in a review, then the user just needs to find the review. So what will Evidence Aid do? Well, Evidence Aid is identifying the existing reviews, doing new reviews, and updating existing reviews where necessary. some of, I mean, we're a tiny, tiny little team, so that is really being encouraged of, of volunteers and of people who will come along at the side of Evidence Aid, and now some funding programs, such as the Humanitarian Evidence Program, which is led by Tufts University on Oxfam, which is commissioning, new reviews, to fill some of the gaps that they identified and prioritised. And I'll say a little bit about prioritisation in a moment. Advocate and facilitate the conduct of reviews by others. Prepare contextual summaries. Again, it's, it's no good handing a surgeon a review of what happened when this was studied in a busy but relatively calm emergency room in Edinburgh or in Chicago or in Sydney. What? is the evidence that they should be taking from that review in a field hospital in Haiti or in Japan. Contextual summaries can help them do that. Bringing it all together in a readily accessible, easily searchable knowledge repository. Helping to resolve uncertainties. That's, so. This is, I would say that that's my drive. My drive is to say people are uncertain about the best way forward. Let's give them the evidence that will help them re- resolve those uncertainties. So the evidence aid website, evidenceaid.org, um, is, is being revamped at the moment, but it brings together the review. So it now has uh, 300 or so reviews on it, so people can go there. As we inform more and more people about it, they know that evidenceaid.org, go there. If there's a review and it's been identified, it's there. We work uh, very closely with publishers so that the, our, our Goal is that all of those reviews are freely available to all, that they're all outside subscription firewalls, and all of the publishers we've approached so far have allowed PDFs of their subscription-only articles to go onto this website free of charge to the user because there's no point in making this material available and then somebody's got to pay $25 to read an article. Uh, so we're working with publishers to make it all, and that's been successful so far. I mean, as the number increases, you know, who knows? But at the moment, all 300 or so reviews freely available to all. But then we need to think about interpreting the evidence. And I'm just going to show you two examples from collections we've built of systematic reviews that relate to um, issues around disasters. So this first one is from a collection that's really aimed at earthquake response. And one of the research questions that has been tackled in a Cochrane review is whether or not you need to use sterile saline, sterile water, or just clean water to clean a wound. And the wounds are what um, would be called clean wounds in the sense that they're not you know, obviously contaminated with um, material which will need washing away and the Cochrane view concludes that the evidence from the trials does not require the use of sterile saline or other very carefully prepared solutions to clean wounds. Drinkable tap water will do but the interpretation of that then in a disaster setting has to take account of what else might I do with this drinkable tap water. If I've got a lot of sterile saline and I've got one tanker of drinkable tap water, well, maybe I'll use the sterile saline to clean the wounds and use the drinkable, tap water, the drinkable water to drink. But there's the evidence. So it says that if, you know, if, you, if the water's okay, then you're probably wasting your time trying to move in lots of um, other things to try and clean the wounds. Use the, use the water that's there. Maybe put some other things on the lorries. Put some other things on the helicopters. Put some other things on the planes. And then this is an example of something that uh, the evidence says doesn't work. There's a concept of uh, psychological brief debriefing, which is the idea that you go in after someone has experienced a traumatic event, you talk to them for half an hour maybe, and then you move on. So it sounds like a highly efficient intervention for coping with uh, the distress people have felt after a traumatic event. So it would appear at first sight to be a highly efficient thing to do in a disaster context, move from village to village, administering brief debriefing. The evidence says it doesn't work. And if anything, it might be harmful. It might store up problems for later, which again, as I've already mentioned, would be the last thing a responder would want to do. You breeze in, you fix people. Six months later, they're more broken than they were if you hadn't been there. So it's the last thing you want to do. And we know that this evidence was In the minds of um, someone called Prathap Tharian, who's a psychiatrist in India and was responsible for the mental health first response in India, Prathap knew this evidence and said, we're not doing that. There are other things that we're we're going to do. We're not doing that. I don't care how many counsellors want to go into the region and deliver it. We're not doing it. I'm not allowing them to do it. And because one of the early um, successes of Evidence Aid was it brought people together from the region who were already together as members of Cochrane, and they talked to each other, and Prathat was able to convey this knowledge to the teams responsible in Sri Lanka for their mental health response as well. So you have to think about the evidence. We also then have to recognize that it is not just going to be reviews of the effects of interventions. There are other things as well, and this is a resource that was built after Typhoon Haiwan in the Philippines a couple of years ago, working with DFID and working with Public Health England to identify reviews that could be given to the people that were being sent there from the UK to say, what might you expect to find when you arrive? Because we don't have the data coming back yet, but what are the problems that happen after windstorms? What are the problems that happen? There's a review in there to to people's basic medication because it's not all about mending broken bones some of the biggest challenges are how you're going to get the normal health system up and running again. And if people have lost their diabetic medicine, if they've lost their blood pressure-lowering tablets, how are we going to get that sorted out? And there's a review of the scale of that problem following disasters, and that allows the planners and the policymakers to decide what to do about it. And then special collections. So uh, Ebola uh, brought together a collection of resources in relation to management of Ebola from the from the uh, treatment side through the prevention side but also some of the issues around policy and so on then you have to think about what's needed so I'll work through these slides because these slides are also important as we think about evidence and we think about evidence in the challenging areas of disasters we need to think about who decides what evidence is going to be generated who decides what evidence is going to be promoted So one of the things that in our second phase, second five years of evidence aid that we recognised was that we really need to go out there and find what the priorities are. In our naive stage, early on after the Indian Ocean tsunami, we talked to people in the region about their evidence needs and we identified about 200 needs at the time, of which there were um, reviews that would fill 30, 40 or 50 of those needs. In 2013, we thought, well, let's do this globally. Before 2013, we've been able to identify no prioritization setting exercise for disaster-related research. We know that some aid agencies have lists of topics they would like to see researched. But most don't have a research division, despite, in the humanitarian sector, organizations suggesting that they should put, set aside some of their funding for research. There is a, sometimes there's a kickback, and it says, well, we're busy, too busy responding to do research. Well, vets and medics are too busy treating to do research would be a similar argument, and we don't accept that argument. So we can see research done. When it is done in the agencies, it tends to be scattered across, even across the very same agency, divided often by country or by sector within the agency. So there is no easy way to identify what research priorities there are, and transparency and independence is vital when you're prioritizing research so somebody can come and say well who are you to say that's a priority? Is this just your wish list? Is this your wish list as academic researchers to go and get funding to do research in the areas you want or is it genuinely coming from people in the sector? The aim was to identify 30 high priority research questions with a particular focus on low middle income countries that are worst affected when disaster strikes. Disaster strikes um, the high income as well as the low and middle income, but when it strikes the lower middle income on a background of under-resourced services, the consequences can be much worse. So there's a focus there. And we had already done a needs assessment survey in about 2010-11, which identified as why we should move into the second phase of Evidence Aid. 216 questions had been been suggested and those were then discussed widely. Then they were refined. They were turned into um, things that could be thought about more easily in the sector. 43 uh, themes were identified, including interventions that are not healthcare interventions but might impact on people's health. Another couple of hundred people were then involved in prioritising them. And these were the 10 themed areas that they got down to from the 43. And some of them surprised us. Some of them were extremely difficult to, to actually conduct research in. Others would sort of fit naturally into concepts around evidence-based medicine and the conduct of randomized trials of individuals. Those themes were, were those 10 were generated as the key 10 themes, and those contained many questions, more than what our target was. Our target was down to, get, to try and get down to 30 high priorities. So then a face-to-face meeting took place where the questions had been framed into things that could be subject to systematic review. And I see the uh, posters uh, out the front with the voting for the best PICO. And use it, So using things like PICO, population, interventions, comparators, outcomes, to come up with the questions and asking them to think about those questions in advance of a meeting and to talk about them with colleagues, but then to be prepared to defend their ranking when they arrived at the meeting. The workshop took place in London in 2013, participants from aid agencies, NGOs, across Europe, USA and Africa, um, wide range of backgrounds, all of them though with a background that was global and was humanitarian. It wasn't stuffed with academic researchers, it wasn't stuffed with particular uh, types of responder. Consensus process was used, and uh, the pictures of of the group working, and basically this is how it works. Some of you may be familiar with the nominal group technique. The questions are written on cards. The cards are trying to... you arguing about, you know, does this card belong above that card? So you end up reaching a consensus, with the idea being that the ones that are not in the top 30 do not suddenly become unimportant. We need to generate somewhere to begin. It led to 30 priority questions. Uh, They've subsequently been refined. Some of these are in commission calls now from the Humanitarian Evidence Programme, and the list and the process was published in PLOS Currents Disasters, which is one of the PLOS journals, and it's a journal that works on uh, a a fantastic model uh, of publishing. It's an open-access journal, but nobody pays. Uh, Authors don't pay either. So the PLOS Currents journals work on a model of subsidised by PLOS itself. And... Everybody has it for free. Readers have it for free. Authors, if their uh, material is deemed uh, good enough for publication, don't pay a fee either. And so it's there, and I'm not going to take you through that. But there's a variety of questions. Some are very big questions for reviews. Some are very narrow questions for reviews. And a list of the participants and the organizations who helped prepare it. So just, you know, as a finish, will it be all? Will it be enough for us just to say, here's the evidence? Here here are the systematic reviews of the research studies. They may be randomised trials, they may be other designs. Depends on the research question, but will that be all? Well, I'd say we need to think more than that, and this is just to, again, reinforce what is evidence, what is knowledge, how can people make well-informed decisions. We need to know what's available. So the box is there to illustrate, we need to know what's coming off the planes, what's on the side of the runway, what might be going on the planes to the response. What's going on in the lorries? What are people moving between uh, different regions of their own country as affected? What's there? Because it's no good telling me that I should use this particular drug if I don't have this particular drug. I'm not interested in some wish list of what would be the best drug to use if I don't have access to that drug and to get that drug to me will take three or four days and that's it's irrelevant then. So again, if I was a practitioner I want to know what's in the box. I also want to know who is there Are we going to be able to do um, cesarean sections for the pregnant women who are now ready to give birth? And they haven't been um, inspired to give birth by the earthquake. They're just due and their baby's coming. Well, do I have the surgeons or do I have the midwives? What am I going to do? Who is there? Do I have the uh, people (laughs) that can deliver certain types of health care? And then what is the burden of disease and that's what these pictures are to show you. Is it a large number of displaced people? Is it a raging fire that's going to cause problems from the smoke? Is it going to cause problems from the damage? Is it a massive earthquake that is going to cause problems on distribution? And is going to cause lots of injuries? What is the burden of disease? Because it's no good telling people this is what you should do if you had a lot of people in a displaced person camp. If They say, well, actually, that's not a problem. Because we have moved to the people. They're not on our ground anymore. What we want to do now about the people who are still here. And they're not living in tents. Or maybe it is about people living in tents. You, we have to be sensible. And then we have the evidence on effects. And the idea being to give people available need, information on available, needed, and effective interventions. And again, it's important to drum home the time at a conference like this about what is evidence. Evidence is not just what we get from reviews of randomized trials. It's also what's important. What can we do? What are we able to do? So I just sp- scroll the pictures again and just look at the pictures and you just think now, if you were planning for this, what would you be wondering about? Would you be wondering about how to find people that are under that uh, rubble? Would you be wondering about how to get these people away from the rubble? Would you be wondering about what is in that water? Is that water an overflowing river? Is that water containing contaminated material? Is that water just going to flow through and in in 15 minutes' time it will have gone? Or is it going to fill up this area and cause me those additional problems? What is on fire there? My brother is a a fire, uh, works in a fire brigade. He would be looking at this and he would be wondering, is anybody in there? If there's nobody in there, maybe we'll let it burn out. If there are people in there, how are we going to rescue them? What's in the smoke? What's causing the fire? Is it actually going to burn out or is there a ruptured gas main? And then grief. What are these people uh, worrying about? They're worrying about their family and their friends. They're worrying about communication issues. So we need to think about how are we going to get, what's the logistics of getting the communication back up and running? And then a very tough area for the disaster responders. We've got crushed cars. Are there people in there? Do we want to go in there and try and rescue those people? Is that where you want to send the teams? Or do you want the teams in a walk-in field hospital where maybe they can treat 100 people in the space of a few hours or they can treat one person in the space of a few hours if they're trapped? And the final slide, is a slide that I I think is... it It really gets us thinking about evidence. These are nurses who don't know what's coming, don't know what's going to happen when it arrives, and also are, just like the earlier ones, who are anxious and grieving, they also have family and friends, and they 're wondering where they are. but these are the people to whom we need to give the evidence. The final quote then comes from uh, Paddy Ashdown, um, who chaired a, humani- a review of the humanitarian uh, emergency response five or so, five or six years ago now it met and one of the things that um, He wrote in his covering words, the sector must increase its efforts to demonstrate impact and it must use evidence on what works and what does not and why to improve its performance. That's why we need evidence in the humanitarian sector. That's how we can get evidence and how we can get evidence accessible. Thank you very much.